This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. People with disabilities routinely come in contact with the so-called helping professions, designed to help people with disabilities adjust to their impairments and to improve their standard of living. The people working within these professions are genuinely invested in the success of their clients, but often discover that education and training do not keep pace with the complex reality of disability in the world. While people with disabilities have long argued that disability isn't a problem in need of a cure, more recently, professionals working within the helping or rehabilitation professions are also looking to partner with people with disabilities to better support their clients. Today, we discuss disability and the helping professions. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Joyita Gupta. I'm the host of the show and it's really good to be with you today. I hope that for those of you who have gotten your vaccines, you're feeling okay and you're doing well. And I hope that for those of you who are yet to get your vaccines, you've made those appointments and you are getting ready to uh, get the jab, as they say. Uh, if not, there are, of course, a number of resources to help you do that. I know in Toronto, where I live, there is there was, in fact, a vaccine clinic specifically for people with disabilities, and I heard very good things about it. Now, when we think about healthcare and people with disabilities, let's face it, um, we as people with disabilities often do come in contact with the healthcare and rehabilitation professions, and oftentimes... We are concerned about those interactions, but a number of scholars after years of working in the rehab and helping professions are now taking a sober second look at how they can work with people with disabilities better. Madeline Burkhardt is an instructor with the School of Health Policy and Management at York University. And Fad Shormans is Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at McMaster University. They, along with Tracy Edelist and Karen Yoshida, are co-authors of a new paper, Coming to Critical Disability Studies, Critical Dis- Reflections on Disability in Health and Social Work Professions. They're both in Toronto today. Hello and welcome to the program. It's so good to have you both with us. Hello. Hi. Thank you. So, Madeline, let's get the ball rolling with you. Uh, Off the top of the program, I mentioned the rehabilitation or the helping professions. When we think about the helping professions, what sort of things are we talking about? What kinds of things are we talking about? Uh, Mm. Well, in our our paper, uh, the four of us, um, we, each of us comes from a different helping profession. I stem from occupational therapy and uh, from social work, Tracy from speech language pathology and Karen from physiotherapy. So those are the helping professions that we're discussing in the paper. Uh, We draw from our experiences and our training in those professions. And then, of course, we discuss in the paper, as you suggested in your uh, introduction, how we have moved in our journeys from those positions within those professions to adopt a critical disability studies perspective and how that has affected 
our work and and, um, how that has led us to work in academia in critical disability studies. And let me bring you in here. So when we talk about this gradual movement towards critical disability studies, you're clearly moving away from something. Tell me a little bit about how traditionally the helping professions would consider people with disabilities. You had hinted at, well, not hinted, you touched briefly on this in your introduction. Um, typically, the helping, the helping professions look at disability from a very uh, medicalized lens. They kind of understand disability primarily as a natural thing, something that happens to people, um, to bodies and to minds, and something that thus then requires intervention primarily by medicine um, and related disciplines. And the idea is that disability is seen as a problem. It's seen as something that nobody would want to have and that it really requires uh, professional help to either fix it, cure it, or eradicate it, right? So it's constantly understood as something that you really just don't want to have, that there's no value in this. In fact, it's always understood as as a problem, as a negative thing, and therefore you've just got to take care of it. So, Madeline, when we think about a critical disability studies framework, how is that different from uh, what Anne has described? I mean, what is it about critical disability studies that sets it apart? Well, I think what critical disability studies offers is it unmasks or exposes um, the ways in which, uh, you know, disability or mind-body differences are interpreted in society, as Anne was explaining, how they are interpreted Mm -hmm. as problems that require fixing. So CDS comes in with theoretical frameworks and uh, history and understandings that help us to expose those uh, very limited views of mind-body differences and uh, helps us to understand how those limitations have historically come to be understood as reasonable, that somehow, as Anne was mentioning, disability is seen as a natural phenomenon instead of something that's constructed, CDS exposes that constructedness and helps us to understand that um, these obstacles have been made to seem reasonable or normal when really they're not. Um, And so Mm. that's really the really important piece that CDS offers. And, you know, when I was reading the paper, I was thinking, well, here are four people who are very committed to a critical disability studies framework. But what about um, the practitioners or the professionals within the kinds of disciplines and the kinds of professions that we've talked about today? How widely accepted are these ideas around critical disability studies, would you say? Um, They aren't. I would say at this point, they are not widely accepted. There's certainly a growing number of people a number of professionals who are starting to recognize and incorporate um, critical disability studies frameworks into their work. Um, in social work, it sometimes uh, is recognized that it aligns in some ways with like a person-centered um, approach, person-in-environment approach. Um, but still, most schools of it, uh, most professional schools are still teaching about disability in very particular medicalized ways. Um, Mm. small example is, you know, when you think about, um, when I think about education is students will be learning about things like oppression, but very often when you see lists of oppression and lists of the various isms like sexism and racism stuff, disability is seldom included in that, right? Mm. It's just always not understood as Madeline said, 
to, to be connected to social structures and systems. So it's not understood as an experience of oppression. And for many disabled people, oppression plays a significant role in their lives, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not thought, right? So the numbers are still quite small in the field, I think. Yeah. And if small I but growing, add, of course. If I could just add a little bit to that, um, just that in the paper also we discuss a little bit how um, for those people working within the professions and who are also teaching the professions in you know in universities and colleges that they can also encounter barriers to trying to incorporate more critical frameworks or approaches, and sometimes that has to do with the uh, criteria that uh, the professions establish for students to reach in order to to gain their license to be, and to become working professionals in that field. And uh, sometimes there are differences of opinion in terms of how much of a critical approach is actually necessary. So so there is movement, as Anne was suggesting, and there's a growing body of literature and reflection. Um, but, but professionals themselves and scholars themselves can encounter barriers in that process. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are teaching um, in in schools that are preparing people for these kinds of professions, work in these professions, um, very often, you know, most of these professional programs require that students go out into the field, right, for um, mm-hmm. practicum experiences before they can finish their education. And a challenge is we can teach them critical perspectives in the school, but when they take that out into the field, because there are so few practitioners who actually um, know of those perspectives, uh, or like Madeline says, are, are supported to adopt those kinds of critical disability studies uh, frameworks, then students then don't have any support to learn to how to actually use them in practice, and they don't have the opportunities to do so. And so, you know, that can be a bit of a frustrating experience for the students, as well as, you know, for us as educators who are trying to move these kinds of perspectives into the field. Mm-hmm. And let me talk to you a little bit about the relationship between the professional and the client. It's one of the things that I've been mulling about a lot myself because the the traditional conception is that the professional, be it a social worker or uh, an occupational therapist or a speech therapist, that person is the expert. Um, how mm-hmm. does the critical disability studies framework disrupt that understanding or that relationship between the client and the patient? Uh, the client and the professional. I mean, yes. I mean, what what you've just said is key. I mean, that that whole understanding has to be disrupted. It has to be let go of this notion of the professional as the expert. Um, that's been a very damaging um, a damaging approach uh, for for a very long time. Um, what that does is that you know this idea of uh, the professional as expert. It works to really make invisible the knowledge and experiences that disabled people themselves have about what it is they need, right? So that just is is not included in in the equation at all, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so to break it down, like to start to disrupt it, you really have to um, shift the relationship so that professionals recognize and understand that disabled people themselves bring knowledge and experience to the relationship, to the determination mm-hmm. of what it is they need, the best ways to go about it, right? So professionals need to be open. They need to be open to learning from and learning with disabled people as a way of determining what supports may be needed, and as well as you know how those supports are provided, who provides those support, which may not even be the professionals themselves, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it is very important that they recognize disabled people might have a much better understanding of what they need than the professionals do, right? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. the other part that goes with that is is recognizing that, you know, professionals need to recognize that disabled people are much more than their diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. Their lives mm-hmm. are far more complex, uh, far broader than any of the diagnoses or labels that get attached to them. Mm-hmm. And if I could just add something as well, I think uh, another really important piece that critical disability studies brings to uh, this idea of the, the uh, in quotation marks, you know, patient-professional relationship is that um, it, it helps us to look at the history and to understand that these professions exist and have continued uh, because people have been seen as requiring them or that, you know, people need to be limited in order for those professions to actually exist and to continue, right? So it's this ongoing portrayal of people needing support, needing a very particular kind of intervention that allows rehab and social work professions to continue in a very traditional way, you know? So it's it's kind of a kind of arrangement, uh, in quotation marks, like limited person in order to exist. I'm Joita Gupta. My guests today are Anne Burkhardt, who is an instructor in the School of Health Policy and Management at York University. And with Madeline today is Anne Fudge-Shorman, who is Associate Professor of Social Work at McMaster University. And Anne and Madeline, along with their co-authors, have written a new paper that deals with critical disability studies and how that intersects with the helping professions. Madeline, in the paper, you talk about your time spent in Zimbabwe and tell us a little bit about that, what you were doing there and how the work that you did in Zimbabwe might have changed your idea of your role as an occupational therapist. Thank you. Yeah, well, I was uh, working in Zimbabwe for three years um, and I was primarily working with uh, children uh, who have disabilities as well as their parents and quite frequently grandmothers um, around, uh, you know, and as an OT, I was meant to, I was developing a lot of programs with families and looking at the best ways to support families to support their children. And what I learned very quickly once arriving there, because I was working in urban settings as well as very rural settings, I learned pretty quickly that um, my training as a as an OT here in Canada there was a lot that I had not thought about. There's a lot I had not considered because it became very clear that disability is a political issue, disability is a social issue, and the circumstances that I was working in there in Zimbabwe really revealed that very clearly to me and that there was a lot that I couldn't offer in terms of actually um, supporting people in their daily lives. That And it, it showed me how limited the profession of OT actually was in that situation and that what people actually desired and what people actually needed was not something that an OT could really offer. And so it kind of opened me up to the idea that disability is not about mind-body differences only. It is about, it is a political issue, it is a social issue, and that's really what began me to really ponder what we mean by disability and how we need to look at systemic factors and what to do with that, right? And so that was the beginning of the journey towards a more critical and um, sort of analytical uh, perspective on disability and, and where I should go with that. Um, and I don't know if, if I could just give one 
one specific example is um, I was working in a very rural area and um, a woman came to one of the clinics that, that we were having. And this is a woman who had been affected by polio when she was a young child and she used a long walking stick to get around. And of course, as a fairly young OT, I was observing her and my initial reaction was, oh, you know, I'm sure maybe there's something we can do to make that easier for her. Maybe there's some kind of mobility device or something that that we could get arranged for her so that she could get around more easily. But after taking time to really observe and spend some time with her and talk to her, I soon came to realize that she had everything organized the way that worked for her already and that OT intervention in that case might have actually made things worse. Um, and that sort of what I'd learned in my OT training was not going to, to help in any way in this situation. And so it just kind of exposed me to those limits. That is such an interesting observation. And I want to bring you in here as well, because you spent a lot of time in the deinstitutionalization movement, which no one can really quibble with. Uh, the perception is that it's a good thing, uh, getting people with disabilities out of those horrific uh, institutional settings. What did you gain in your journey uh, as a social worker? What were you realizing that you were doing? Um, and how did that, that work inform your perspective uh, as you sort of moved along in your career? Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. Certainly, I don't think anybody would argue with the idea that uh, pulling people out of the institutions was anything but a good thing. I mean, the conditions were atrocious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the harms and violence and violence that people experience are just inexcusable. So, yeah, deinstitutionalization was absolutely necessary. Working, though, uh, with that whole process of moving people into uh, community residence, supporting them in that, working towards um, providing them with, you know, access to very different kind of life, right, by, by moving them into, like, community-based group homes, things like that. All of that was kind of guided very much by philosophies of normalization, giving people more normal lives, more typical lives, right, which, again, um, you know, is perhaps... Um, at least on the surface of it, you know, something that would be hard to argue with. But what I found through that work as time went on was that, you know, there was also this uh, corollary idea that, you know, to do this, you also had to change people, to make disabled people more normal, right? Then just as a way of making sure or facilitating that they would be accepted, that they would be included, that the things that you were trying to achieve in terms of access to education, access to, you know, um, generic kinds of community supports and opportunities, that those things would happen, right, or be more likely to happen. And so that started to feel quite uncomfortable um, in that, you know, I can remember attending trainings where we were told, you know, well, people need to dress this way. You can't put them in things like, you can't let them wear things like a Mickey Mouse t-shirt because it's infantilizing. You know, you shouldn't let people be friends with each other. They need to be friends with people who don't have disabilities. There were all kinds of things, you know, that were happening in the name of working towards inclusion that really started to feel uncomfortable, right? Um, Really uh, very, very uncomfortable because it was like it really made plain that this was a group of people who were so devalued that, you know, 
the only way to, it seemed to me the only way to support inclusion was to change them, as opposed to working towards a greater understanding of, you know, the value of different ways of being in the world, different ways mm-hmm. of doing things, right? Um, and it was really a, quite a violation of people's own rights to, to make their own choices as to what they wear, um, who their friends were. I mean, it's one thing to show people and teach people what other people do. But at the end of the day, people need to be able to make their own choices, right? So that got to be quite uncomfortable. Um, And that was really kind of what started to push me towards thinking differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of thinking differently, Madeline, in the few minutes Mm -hmm. that we've got left, what do we need to think about differently in terms of the helping professions? What needs to change? Well, I think that... um I think we've made a lot of progress socially around um, understanding intersectional identities and understanding other identities such as, you know, race, around race and gender as uh, socially constructed. I think we've made a lot of progress, and I think those same steps need to be taken around a disability or around mind-body differences as well, that we need to be um, pushing things even within regular academic areas and including the helping professions, we need to be uh, really encouraging those ideas of the constructedness of um, mind-body differences in the same way we have made progress around other identities such as race and, and gender, etc. right? And, and so I think um, sort of drawing from that and yet foregrounding the needs of disabled people will really help to, to move things forward. And I want to give you the last word. In light of everything we've said, how useful are these helping professions? Are they making a difference to people with disabilities? Or do we need to think about different ways of intervening in the lives of people with disabilities? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the challenges right now is, you know, much like Madeline said, um, the helping professions have such a um, such a, a large role in the lives of people with disabilities. And the systems are set up such that you need a diagnosis of some kind to actually access any kind of support. And then the system is such that, you know, very particular services provide very particular things. Part of it is, I mean, you know, there are a number of people who don't feel they need fixing, but there are other people who uh, are actually looking for supports and services. And so, I mean, it's very difficult to just completely um, knock down a system and create a new one. But certainly I think we do need greater recognition that, you know, supports and services can be done in many, many different ways, that the helping professions may have particular roles, but uh, they really do need to seriously rethink their roles, right, and rethink how they do things, and that in order to do that, they really need to collaborate with disabled people in order to sort of rethink and uh, reframe and just sort of redevelop a system that actually works for everybody. Anne and Madeline, thank you very much for being on the program today. Our time has flown by, but I've learned a lot, and I think everyone else has as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Anne Fudge-Shorman and um, Madeline uh, are both the co-authors of a new paper that has looked at the role of critical disability studies in the helping professions. That paper is available on the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. It's available online as an HTML or a PDF document. So feel free to download that. Um, if you feel like listening uh, to more of the show, you can always go back and find our podcast on our favorite podcast platform. And of course, you can also reach out to us on our 
uh, webpage, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Madeline Burkhardt. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.